Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Silky Mitten State, a hockey podcast about Michigan. I'm Sam Stockton. I'm joined this morning by my good friend and co-host, Connor Yeargood. Connor, how are you doing today, my friend? Pretty good. Uh, coming off the heels of a uh, 21-7 victory over Ohio State's newspaper, uh, The Lantern. So, feels pretty good. Good to be on top. Good to be a champion. Well, I'm I'm happy for you. I'm proud of you. I know that I like a small piece of you died when when the state newspaper kind of cowered away from playing you all. Yeah, it was it was embarrassing, but uh Ohio State, you know, we we moved on to uh bigger and better things and you know, joint journalism projects with with Ohio State that we planned well in advance, not 2 weeks out. Not to throw mm. shots on the uh, on the podcast, but yeah, the, the I will folks say- who are in the know know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I will say I got to know Connor last year by virtue of us both being on the Michigan hockey beat together um, when he was covering it for the daily. And I would say one of the first things I learned about him was this total commitment to this touch football game against Michigan State to the point that he oh, yeah. and the other writers on the beat are talking about like, well, who's going to play right guard when so and so goes out for their substitution? And this is you yeah. know weeks in advance. Oh, yeah. We had a touch football game. Yeah, we had a two deep, maybe even a three deep. We, we we had the roster going, and we were making so many subs against uh, Ohio State. You know, if we would have played the starters, we probably would have smacked them. But they do we, say uh, the separations and the preparation. And clearly, yeah. I mean, what is what's the nature of your win streak against Michigan State's paper? Uh, since two thousand, no, it's nineteen years and seventeen games. So I think it's wow. It's early 2000s. I can't do the math this morning. But yeah, we we won't make you 2004. Do that. I think it's I, 2004. I do think the yeah. point is that just winning 17 straight touch football games, even if it were the Detroit Lions against school children, like that's a lot of consecutive touch football games to win to yeah. not stumble into an accidental victory once. No along trap that games. Road. Yeah. yeah, we uh, you know, we're we're well prepared. We pack our parachute the night before and uh, you know, deploy it the the day of. So. Mm-hmm. Well, well, good for you. Well done. Keeping that streak alive. Shots fired at, at the state news, but hopefully this will motivate them to get there. <laughs> we're, 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 we're hoping they play us again sometime. We're, we're hoping. Yeah. Um, I do have kind of breaking news this morning, an important story that's come across my desk that I wanted you to weigh in on. This is coming from the pages, the digital pages, I should say, of ESPN.com. Okay. The headline is Jamison William raves about Oreo McFlurry double creation. Are you familiar with the story I'm talking about right now? I am not, but I'm intrigued. So this is by Eric Woodyard of ESPN. We've got our, uh, it starts, though it doesn't exist on the current McDonald's menu, Detroit Lions receiver Jamison Williams has invented a new item. He dubs it the Oreo McFlurry double. It's not a super creative name. I'm no longer quoting from the story. The it is, you know, exactly what that name suggests it is. An Oreo McFlurry dumped on a McDouble. Is that a menu item that would intrigue you? Do you think that the oh. like sweet and salty there can order? I can see by your face that right away you're you're not intrigued oh, at all. What? <laughs> like, okay. Each individual part I love dearly. All right. Together. The texture, the you know, the way the ice cream is gonna make the bun soggy, like, and then just the mess of trying to eat it. No, 
Yeah, if you're already skeptical, I can definitely tell you that the image that's in the story will not make you less skeptical oh, because it does hurts. look pretty gross. Especially like once you start kind of disembodying your McDonald's items and then adding stuff to them, I think that generally doesn't look oh. super appealing. Yeah. Oh, oh what? <laughs> Dude, and there's pickles on there. Yeah, I mean, I love pickles, so I think that... Not with like, ice cream? Yeah, no, not with ice cream. Oh, I, I don't like ice cream with my pickles. No way. Hmm. Yeah. The one thing he does say that I think makes a lot of sense is that he's got, he's wanted to do this for a while, but that he keeps going to McDonald's where their ice cream machine, or their McFlurry machine, I guess, is not working. And so he's That's been unable so to do it for a long time, which, yeah, it's like most McDonald's do fall into that category, but... I, I think at the end of the day, I'm I'm siding with you that this is not a a thing I would be all that eager to explore. Yeah, maybe a plain cheeseburger, you know, but with the ketchup and the onions and the pickle and the mustard. No way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ugh. yeah, and yeah, the the execution of eating it not very appealing either. All no. right, um, yeah. Now that we've got kind of the heavy hitting journalism out of the way, do you want to segue into some <laughs> Red Wings? Uh, sure. All right. So, um, it was, we're recording as always on Friday morning, which is to say the Red Wings are going to play the Maple Leafs in a couple hours. Um, and in some ways this podcast podcast will, will sort of fall out of date as a result of that. But, um, we're going to focus on the, the week that was, and we'll obviously get to that Leafs game next week. Um, so what we did have since last we recorded is a five, four, home win over the Columbus Blue Jackets. Then the team sets off to Sweden, um, takes a couple of days off, at least as far as playing games go, before on Thursday, yesterday, as of this recording, falling 5-4 in overtime to the Ottawa Senators. Um, why don't we start, you know, chronologically with that Blue Jackets game? Um, the Red Wings get the win. Maybe not the most convincing performance, especially with the way Columbus was had them on the ropes, at least temporarily in the second period. Um, yeah. What were your reactions, I guess, to that Blue Jackets game in particular, Connor? Um, I was a little surprised, honestly, that it, it took overtime, um, just considering that Columbus is, is really struggling this year. I mean, it's it's a last minute head coach. Um, a, a lot of young players, they're sending down young players because they're trying to figure out what's going to work for them. Um, so it's, it, it just struck me as a little odd that Detroit struggled. Um, that being said, it, it's good to, you know, eke out a tough win, I guess, um, mm -hmm. when, when you fall into a trap of sorts. Um, so overall that it's hard to be upset with a win. Um, maybe regulation would have been a little, a little more pleasing. Sorry, but... this was the Columbus win was in regulation rather than oh, I'm in sorry. overtime. It's possible I, I misspoke was on that. Yeah, that was regulation. The sense game went. Oh, okay, overtime. never mind, never mind. I take that <laughs> back. Then yeah, I mean that's what they needed to do. Um, it, five to four is a little tight though. Um, but you know, it, it, a win is a win. At the end of the day, it's it's still two po or yeah, two points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... the college hockey three points. <laughs> yes, which <laughs> is misspoke. A more logical system which is going to be splitting it yes. yeah yeah um, gary batman write that down mm -hmm. yeah gary batman longtime listener to the silky mitten state gary batman um the i think by xg um 
Detroit was quite a bit better in this game, which kind of leads you back to this was our conversation last week about goaltending confidence. This was not a stellar performance in goal from Billy Huso. It wasn't necessarily at the level of some of what we've seen. Like we talked about some of those really soft goals in like the Bruins game two weeks ago, um, the Ranger game as well, where it, you could point to kind of one of them as like, oh, that was a really bad one to give up. But when you mm-hmm. look at kind of the sum total of that performance, the Red Wings should have been able to play that game from a more comfortable position. But Huso was not able to make those saves. And instead the Jackets get four goals in a game when they did not necessarily create a lot. I thought the one kind of positive to again, circle back to a conversation we had last week around Robbie Fabry, you and I were both sort of skeptical about just how much of an impact Fabry could have for the Red Wings. And that wasn't so much about his game as much as it was about his injuries and the kind of lack of continuity we were like eh, is what this team is missing really like a middle six type score but in fact that in providing that against columbus fabry had a big goal um he was initially credited for another one but it turned out he did not make contact with that but his line um with centered by joe valeno was was outstanding and i think really kind of swung the tide in detroit's favor and lately, it's we've seen fairly consistent performances, a little bit up and down with the top line. But for the most part, even if they haven't necessarily been scoring, that that line has been performing pretty well most nights. And the fourth line has been pretty consistent as well. And again, another topic we kind of touched on last week, not necessarily that you're counting on them to score a ton, although they actually have scored at a pretty high rate. Um, in recent games, but that they've been reliable as far as kind of tilting the ice in the right direction, which is maybe more important for a fourth line than that actual goal scoring. But the middle six has not necessarily gotten a ton done offensively. You've seen that cop comfort line be reasonably useful as far as its deployment and kind of absorbing difficult matchups, but they haven't scored a ton. So the fact that Fabry comes into the lineup and is able to provide a little bit of an offensive spark there, I think is encouraging, though obviously the fact remains that with Fabry, the biggest question is about continued health rather than performance. Yeah. And and that's the beauty of depth too, that I think the wings kind of haven't had in many, many of the most recent years, just through, you know, injuries um, through lack of, <laughs> of guys they've signed. Um, I, I feel like being active in free agency and, and the trade block um, they've, they've been able to accumulate that depth. Um, and so it is, it is good to see Robbie Fabry, you know, execute when he's in the lineup um and and, and get a little bit of a, a reward um i still am hesitant on his his role you know it is a small sample size um he's he's just getting back so i feel like there is that emotion that um you know ability to play really well um when, when you come back in the lineup because you got a lot of motivation but um it, it it's just a matter of the long term as a puzzle piece even if he's a good one how he's gonna fit um that that i'm still just questioning and i'm you know I, I might be wrong on that. There might be a spot for him, um, but it's just, it seems like he's kind of the, I don't want to say the odd man looking in, but like, I don't know. He's like the, he's like the wallflower at a party, just like kind of standing there. Yeah. I think, his, yeah. I think there is a sort of question of role there and like what exactly that is for Fabry when everybody else is healthy and, and things are sort mm-hmm. of otherwise looking good. Um, 
as you were saying, and and Fabry himself kind of joked in the postgame presser after that Blue Jackets game about how he's like almost embarrassed by the fact that he has a lot of experience with coming back from injury, as you were saying, and kind of making that initial burst of an impact that obviously his preference would be to have not had so many moments where he's had to work his way yeah. back into the lineup. And that's the tough part, too, is you never want to knock someone for something they can't control. Like he didn't go out and go like, I'm going to get injured today and like <laughs> throw his knee at someone so they could hit it. Like that's not how it went down. So it's it's, it's difficult to I don't want to call it criticized, but, you know, I, I guess really just knock him for it and, and say like, oh, you're injury prone, even though he's trying. So, um, yeah, it is a difficult situation, but it's just the unfortunate reality of kind of finding continuity, finding a role on a team that has a, a lot of good good pieces and a lot of good pieces in, in the system too that um, are kind of knocking on the door as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he did show in that return, there was also a moment of like true reckless abandon and sort of disregard for the preservation of his health, which was uh, an awesome sliding kind of kick save shot block that was probably the save of the game for the Red Wings. And on, as as we said, you know, not a great Billy Huso performance. Um yeah. But Fabry, he broke his foot doing the same thing against, or not the exact same thing, but on a shot block against Philly last year. So maybe there's a part of you that's like, eh, Robbie, I don't know if we need you blocking that one. But it was a great play. Yeah. And, and as players will always say in reference to those shot blocks, they they really do kind of get the bench going and, and drive engagement when you have players willing to to make that sort of sacrifice. Yeah, and especially with his, his history too. It's like if the dude that's been out more games than he's been in in the, in the past few seasons if he's laying out for the shot block if you're like you know healthy you know like 24 prospect rookie pretty pretty easy to follow that example mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um and so then yesterday uh this was an afternoon game um here in michigan though of course uh, an evening start local time in stockholm the red wings drop a 5-4 game in overtime to Ottawa. Um, it was a pretty good start uh, in general. In fact, I would go as far as to say a really good start as far as immediately the, the Red Wings are out of the gate on top of the Senators. They're playing their, you know, that simple forechecking game that we talked about last week. Um, and, and they're doing the things that they want. But then Michael Rasmussen takes a totally needless penalty in the offensive zone the Red Wings go to the penalty kill they give up a power play goal and next thing you know it's four nothing in the second minute by the second minute of the second period um then the Red Wings mount a furious comeback they score four goals in the back half of that second period they take a bunch of penalties in the third but they kill them all um only to eventually lose the game in overtime on a pretty remarkable Tim Stutzla batted in goal. It was, I believe, Drake Batherson's kind of leading the rush in for the Sens. He tries to center it. A sliding Shane Gostasbear bats it off of his stick up into the air. Stutzla bats it in. And the Red Wings, with I think it was about two seconds left in in the overtime before it was going to go to the shootout, lose the game 5-4. What were your takeaways from that game? Were you kind of encouraged by the comeback? Were you discouraged by being in a position where you needed to make that comeback? Um, yeah, what was your reaction? I mean, I feel like it's it's the Michigan, uh, you know, the college Michigan hockey experience, right? Of, you know, maybe not executing well um, in, you know, the penalty department, um, taking a lot of them, giving up a lot of chances because of that, and then having to come back. Um, not to say it's in one-to-one correlation, but it's just a, 
a script I think you and I have both seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to, to break out of that um, because like you never want to tell a player play less intense. You never want to tell a player, you know, don't play your game. Don't be confident. Worry about the refs. You just want them to go out there and, and play. Um, and so it's that finding that balance to like tell people not to take stupid and, and poorly timed penalties without kind of shattering their confidence. And I feel like that's a lot easier with pros than college players. Uh, but I've never been in that room. I've never been that coach. So I'm not completely sure on that. I don't want to speak on that too much. Um, but it is, I, I, I keep drawing references, I think, throughout these podcasts to that 2015-16 Wings team, that last playoff team. And that was a very similar start to, to some of those games hmm. where the Red Wings, by virtue of bad goaltending or a bad start or penalties or whatever, go down so early in the first period and then end up forcing overtime and losing the, the number of, of overtime pity points that 2016 team had made the difference and put them in the playoffs. So even though they probably should beat the senators, like that's a team that's very even with them. That's a team that has a a similar situation that maybe they can capitalize on in a pretty tough Eastern conference. Um, At the same time, being able to make a mistake and, you know, bounce back from it and, and have a shot, even have a shot at the shootout. Um, it's an encouraging side. And, and there's going to be games in the playoffs where they get crawled on for the first period. So if they make the playoffs, it's a good primer for for how they're going to have to play. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think you're right to point to the fact that like pulling a point out of a game that you trailed 4-0 is, you know, a small victory and, and shouldn't be dismissed. Like that point could make a difference down the road um, as we talk about this as a team that's kind of, pushing for the playoffs. And I think there's also also part of me that's inclined to really not read all that much at all into these games in Sweden, right? Just because mm-hmm. there's such a deviation from the norm. And obviously, oh, yeah. as, as the Red Wings have said over and over throughout this week, it, it, as they've been doing their media, like these are two really important divisional games. These are four really important points in the standings at stake. Um, so it's not that these don't count, but that there are so many sort of extenuating circumstances informing these games that it it doesn't feel like the fairest way to to judge exactly what the state of the Red Wings is. Um, a, a kind of side note on that is that in addition to, you know, the general uh, unease, I guess, or instability that comes from traveling to Europe, Billy Huso came back to Detroit on Monday um, to to join his wife for the birth of the their daughter, which obviously congratulations to them. Um, happy for them, of course. Um, but that you're, you know, you're going into this back to back without your normal starting goaltender as well. Um, so in that Toronto game today, we will see Alex Lyon for the first time. That's, you know, one more kind of point of intrigue that we talked about last week of, of wanting to see what exactly that looks like. And maybe when everybody's had something of a layoff going into that game, it's not as big a deal that, that Lyon hasn't played in a regular season game. Um, but, but to me, the thing that really was genuinely discouraging about the first, I guess it would be about. 22 minutes of this game was the D zone coverage was really, really poor at times. Um, This was not an easy night for Ben Sherratt and Jeff Petrie. They both finished as minus threes. um, And I believe we're on the ice for all four regulation goals. In fact, Um, Sherratt in particular at the the second goal, it's Stutzla kind of skating in off the rush. He is working on Alex to bring it and to bring it does for a forward kind of forced into a defenseman's position does a solid job of, of forcing him to the outside and kind of working him out of what would be a really high danger area. Ben Chirot is there in position to clear the crease and, and Stutzla's centering pass just goes right past him with him 
you know, seemingly unaware um, as that's happening. And it's an easy tap in goal for Brady Kachuk at the back post. There are other defensive breakdowns on, on all four of those goals um, to, to put the sense out in front. And I think, you know, we've been kind of throughout our conversations, framing the season around the idea of a playoff push, because I think that's, that's the way the Red Wings, you know, with both the way that they've talked about the season and the moves that they made in the off season, that's the, the framing that they've invited. And it, I wouldn't be inclined to say something like, well, this is playoffs or bust because I'm not, you know, totally sure what that would even mean as far as like yeah. the stakes, if you don't make the playoffs, then what? Um, and I think it's, it's not, you know, talking out of school to say that realistically, this is not a, team that's in championship contention by any stretch but i think making the playoffs and and making a push there is a, especially with the way the team started the year a fairly realistic goal and and so you'd like to see them live up to that but the reality is that the formula for this team cannot be playing this poorly in the defensive zone if they want to make the playoffs um there's there's just not going to be a way through the atlantic division like that and this isn't a team that's built to to you know outscore their problems even if that is something they were able to do for the first couple games of the season yeah and and that's where red wings teams like i feel like last season and the season before that when they get hot goaltending at the start um you know, with, with Huso or um, why am I forgetting his name? Um, Nadelkovich. Nadelkovich. Oh my God, he was a former <laughs> Flint Firebird. Why? Why would I do that? Unbelievable um, that you would turn un- on unbelievable. Flint like that. <laughs> no, um, I mean, when there's hot goaltending at the start, they perform really well because um, the goaltending can kind of take over from some of the the mistakes. Um, and I don't feel like they've gotten that goaltending surge this no, season. I don't think. Um, if anything, I feel like it's as, as we've talked about, kind of been a weakness. Um, and so when you have that sort of extra roadblock, you know, factor holding them back, um, it, it just, it's harder to like, I don't know, the, the higher the level of hockey, you can't just outscore your problems. Um, and so when it gets down to, as you mentioned, playoffs and, and opponents are tougher, but even just every day in, in, in the Atlantic and, and in the Metro, um, there's not really an easy team that, you know, you can put in a, a really bad goalie and just kind of outscore them by nature of their poor defense and their poor goaltending. So, um, yeah, they, they got to figure that out. And, you know, it, as, as much as it is on the goaltenders, it is also on the defense to to make it an easy night for for the goaltenders. So that could also be part of the, the problem as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely hard, I think, to to separate out what we've seen as far as some poor defending with some poor goaltending results. Like as much as Kuso's numbers are not exactly flattering to him, um, and obviously he wasn't playing last night, it was Reimer, uh, and I don't mm-hmm. think it was a banner night for Reimer either. Uh, like the reality of playing behind a defense that's having major issues with coverage, with these just kind of fundamental breakdowns that seem to be happening m- multiple times a period uh of late that that's not going to make your life easier as a goaltender i also think there's we sometimes talk about like that a defensive minded team is better suited to playoff hockey than than the regular season uh i think the example for that of, of recent memory would be those barry trotts islanders teams that that made it to back-to-back conference finals as a team that you know more or less snuck into the playoffs both of those seasons but was <laughs> able to kind of thrive in the postseason I definitely think there's some truth to that, but I think it's also true that if you're a team that 
brings a kind of structured intensity to playing team defense in the regular season, that's a real advantage, especially this early in the regular season, because not a lot of teams do do that. Like a lot of yeah. teams, it, it, it is, you know, we're used to seeing in October, November, December, less structured games, let games where that's not as big of a factor. And I think in the playoffs, in the context of a playoff series, I actually feel like it becomes more important to have that kind of high end offensive firepower to like mm. score the occasional easy goal where you don't have to grind everything out and work, you know, horribly hard just to score once in the way that those Islander teams kind of fizzled out against what were clearly much more gifted offensively lightning teams that also played really sound defense by the end. Um, so I think it, it can be, uh, I'm not sure that the, I think that for this Red Wings team to make the playoffs, they have to be a team that does play with that kind of defensive intensity, that defensive structure on a night in night out basis over the course of the regular season. And if we're taking the last week or two as, as the sample for that, it's it's not going super well. Totally agree. Mm -hmm. um, off of that, I think we, we talked about sort of the, the, um, bottom half of the Red Wings defensive depth chart last week through the prism of like who should be the the healthy scratch should there what's the value of 11 and 7 versus 12 and 6 but the one thing we didn't talk about that I think is at the top of a lot of Red Wing fans minds right now is Simon Edvidson who mm. is uh at the the top of the defensive depth chart in Grand Rapids who had what I think by all accounts was a really strong preseason, both in terms of the the work he was putting in in camp. And then also the, by and large, the results you saw from him on the ice in some of those preseason games, which obviously, you know, take that with a grain of salt as far as the nature of the lineups that you're going to see in any given preseason game. But I think it was, it was a really strong camp from him. And, you know, Steve Eiserman had said directly like, Hey, we're, nobody's going to get crowded out. If you're good enough to play in the NHL, you we will find a spot for you in the NHL. I think right now it's pretty hard to look at what we've seen from the Red Wings and say that Edvinson hasn't been, at least to some extent, crowded out by the fact that they've had mm -hmm. what they keep describing as as seven NHLD, which obviously they do have that. But I think when you're seeing these kind of lapses from more experienced players like a Ben Sherratt, like a Jeff Petrie, it, it does start to feel as though younger players are held to a different standard as, as far as what their kind of reliability or what what the, the price that they're forced to pay for mistakes. It'll be interesting to see who ends up being the scratch on defense this uh, this afternoon. Um, Justin Hall was that scratch yesterday. We talked last week about how it seems as though a lot of their worst defensive performances are coming with Hall out of the lineup, not to, you know, conflate correlation and causation there, but it, it, that does feel like something of a trend in these last couple of weeks. But I guess my bigger question for you, Connor is, are, are you itching to see Edvinson at the NHL level right now? And if not, what would it take for you to say, yeah, it's, it's Simon Edvinson time. Yeah, I feel like I wanted him to make the team out of camp. Um, and I think you just, as a team, I get that you want young guys to earn their spot, but you also have to invest in them. You can't make a, a an extra barrier for them to make it into the league and show what they can do. Um, and, and there's a lot of learning on the fly that happens that you can't get in Grand Rapids. You can't get it elsewhere. Um, so I feel like putting that sort of faith in him is, is a good thing, especially when he's this high draft pick. He's gutted it out before in, in a season in Grand Rapids. Um, he did so last season. So um, 
I, I feel like the situation though that he gets called up, being that he wasn't with the opening lineup, um, would probably be like an injury or someone who can't play. Um, just given the nature of waivers, and I feel like Steve Eisenman doesn't want to lose anyone through waivers if he has to send someone down and do a little roster juggling. Um, it's going to take everybody. It's going to take depth. That's the reason they they accumulated all these kind of, I don't want to say replaceable defensemen, but like very, very similar skill level defensemen for that, you know, mm-hmm. bottom four. Um, so I feel like the situation he gets called up is someone's banged up. Um, so I don't want to see that. Um, however, I do want to see Edvinson play. Um, so it's sort of like a, a consolation prize, I guess, if if that does happen. Yeah, there there is part of me that understands why in in practical terms they don't feel as though they're kind of on the verge of being in a position where it makes sense to call up Edmondson just because of those seven. And yet when we are seeing kind of a lack of consistency or reliability there, it starts to it's hard not to wonder whether it makes more sense to bring in Edmondson who can also provide a bit more kind of offensive dynamism than a player like a Ben Sherratt um, or, or a Petrie. And I don't mean to pick on those two by any means. I think they, both of them have, have been sort of uh, Petrie obviously just got to Detroit, but I think Sherratt has been someone who, especially the more like analytically inclined fan would say like, what is this guy's value? He, he is on the ice for a ton of shot attempts against. He mm. is this, you know, ostensibly like big physical traditional defensive D man, but, but we see all these kind of vulnerabilities in terms of his shot metrics. I think that's a little bit harsh as far as like, I, I don't think NHL teams are just like totally clueless in, in the, the way that they rate Sherratt higher than some of us on the outside do. But it does feel like, if not now, when, as far as there, there are blemishes in the defensive zone, there are blemishes on that blue line. Mm-hmm. So why doesn't Edvinson deserve a shot? And maybe the answer to that is that it's not as though he's exactly lighting it up with the Griffins in 11 games played. He has three goals, two assists for five points, and he's a minus four, obviously mm-hmm. minus four imperfect stat, a plus minus imperfect stat. And, and that's a Griffins team that's generally really struggled to score. So, and, yeah, and the AHL they, is a hard, a lot of struggles, a hard league to score in, in general. So maybe it's, a, there's not a ton of point in reading into those stats but it, it's not as though he's put himself in a position where you're like oh he he's setting the world on fire in gr he's clearly too good for that league yeah and and maybe that's what they want to see too is him take that that sort of i guess lead by example mentality um and, and put not to say put the team on his back but like really really um start something something positive um i will say with Kind of prospects in general, and this is something I noticed writing, writing for the daily covering Michigan when so many, you know, top 10 picks were, were on the team, um, first round picks. Like, I feel like a lot of fans in general look toward prospects in the future as this sort of like band-aid for the present. Like, oh, we're going to be better when so-and-so gets called up. We're going to be better when Maddie Beneers gets on the team, which Seattle was. Um, we're going to be better when Kent Johnson is on the team, which Columbus was, um, <laughs> despite sending him down. But um, I, I do think like there's there's merit to the argument that a team gets better when prospects join the lineup and, and can can try out and you know really spread their wings. Um, but it doesn't always work out exactly like the team doesn't always get way better when when someone joins the team. Um, sometimes there are Calder contenders that that come from that in in you know 
veneers and Owen Power, but at the same time, like not every example is the same. And, and for a guy like Edmondson, who's been in Grand Rapids and is still trying to earn his way up, hasn't exactly lit it up in, in the AHL. Um, I feel like it's just a lot tougher to um, sort of make that leap. Yeah, I think that's a great point because like inherently there, there's an excitement associated with prospects where mm-hmm. I think as fans, everyone is inclined to to look at them in terms of their ceiling, right? And that's kind of what we do in mm-hmm. like draft projections generally or those, you know, grading a prospect pool type pieces is you're thinking about like, well, if everything does go right, what could mm-hmm. this guy be in three or four years when the excitement of of what a player like Simon Edmondson can be, which I think anyone who looks at a defenseman who is as big as he is and moves the way that he does, in some ways, I think Owen Power is, is a good comp for that. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's You look at that and you say, wow, this could be absolutely incredible. But just because you are that excited about what it might look like in three, four years, that doesn't, that excitement doesn't have a tremendous correlation to winning hockey games right now. And I think that is the argument that the the Red Wings are making internally as far Mm -hmm. as we don't feel like it's time for for Edmondson. Whereas as much as I still do feel like because we're seeing these these warts from the players that are playing night in, night out on, on the back end, let's give Edvinson a shot. Let, let's see what he looks like in this context, because I think another point you made earlier in this conversation that I thought was great is I think a lot of these guys do reach a point where the things that they need to learn, they realistically need to learn at mm-hmm. the NHL level where for Edvinson, he's not in the like Marco Casper stage of like feeling out what it's like to play on North American ice. He yeah. he's got experience in that context at this point. And now you're the, that sort of next step feels much more like it has to do with, figuring it out at the NHL level and figuring out the demands away from the puck at the NHL level, the pace of it, the kind of consistency with regard to structure that I think is often the thing that coaches point to as like, Hey, this guy's not helping us right now. He can't play for us right now because they see those breakdowns. It's like, we can't have that happen. We can't have that happen, but it is happening. And so it, it, it does feel harder to argue against Edvidson joining the team right now. Yeah. It's, it's like, he's passed. Uh, um... I'm going to hop in the school mindset, right? He's passed algebra two. They won't let him take trigger pre-calc. And so he's just perpetually learning what an ellipse is. And, you know, all, all the different, I, I forgot half of them, the different little uh, little formulas and whatnot, you know? Yeah. I was about to say, if you press me on what an ellipse is, I'm not sure I would have an answer I, for you. Is it like the kind of oval with like the two Yeah, it's the oval side? ellipse. It's an ellipse circle. Is it, a, it's not hyperbole. That's, that's hyperbole. A that's a, a totally different thing. thing. Yeah, there's a, a literary term. No, it's the rhetorical it like term. Goes, it like goes like this. They're perfectly like mirrored little hmm. half circles. Hmm. I, I don't, don't know. know. That's stressing me out. though. just the thought of it. Parabola. Parabola is the singular. Right. Okay. It might be hyperbola. It might be. I might hmm. be making that up. I'm skeptical of that. But the, the, I think the, the point the is a good watching one. this that understand math like very well and believe me like i won my high school's math and science awards not to but brag at the same, like not to brag <laughs> but i know my shit and uh at the same time like cannot remember any of that so i think that's good for you and hopefully yeah. you know it's good for simon edvidson he's gonna move on from, exactly. from his his algebra two hopefully yeah. at some point in the not too distant future All right. So now that we've talked a little bit about Edmondson, I think it's also worth taking a second to talk 
touch a little bit on some of those top um, forward prospects for the Red Wings and how they fared in in GR. Like we've said, it goal scoring has been an issue for the Griffins all year. Um, they it's the age as we said, the HL is not an easy league to score in, and the Griffins have frankly not been doing a great job of it. Um, but as far as that kind of highest end of Red Wing prospects. You've got Jonathan Berggren, who's played seven games. He's got a goal and five assists. He's an even rating. You got Marco Casper, 11 games played. He has just one goal and two assists for three points. He is minus one as well. Um, Elmer Soderblom, 11 games played, a goal and three assists. He's also minus one. The one where the numbers are quite encouraging uh, beyond maybe Berggren is Carter Mazur, um, who's only played five games so far this year after coming back from an injury that he sustained at the... Traverse City tournament um, in the preseason, but he's played five games. He's got two goals, two assists, and he is a plus two. Um, so I guess maybe we can start by focusing on Casper in particular. Um, I don't think he's a player where, regardless of what you think of his ceiling, he, he you're expecting him to be a guy who kind of lights up the score sheet. But I think still three points from 11 games is a little bit disappointing. So how troubled are you, I guess, by by his lack of production to this point? I mean, I feel like he just needs to to, to keep getting his feet under him. Um, he's, if I remember correctly, he's still on the smaller side a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming he needs to bulk up a little bit. It's hard to score in in a pro league like the the AHL or the NHL um, when you're a smaller forward. Um, just be by the nature of other teams are going to hit you. They're going to make it at hell for you on the ice. Um, having that extra size can sort of give you some more freedom to uh, maybe cut to the middle, maybe do some different things heading into the zone um, where you're not worried about getting laid out as, as well as when you're, you're forechecking and even in, in defense where you're in positions where you're along the boards, where you're going to get hit. Um, and so I feel like he's just not to over explain that, but like, I feel like he's just got to get big um, gain a little bit of muscle mass. Um, and, and at the same time, like I think you mentioned the fact that he's not going to be a guy that's going to light up the score sheet necessarily. Um, but I also think in Grand Rapids, just by the nature of, it being a little bit weaker competition than the NHL, you almost want to see him still score um, just to make sure he has that in his toolkit and, and can execute offense to the way that against like, NHL NHL teams might uh, translate a little bit, a little, not better. It wouldn't be better than the NHL, but still translates in some way to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think he is a player where it, the, the context of first full season on North American ice is super important. It, it's sort of a cliche to turn back to that with a European prospect, but just for the way it fundamentally changes all of your reference points on the ice as a player, the amount of time and space that you have available to you. And then there are those kind of stylistic differences as far as the, the European game leaning more on those kind of soccer style resets mm-hmm. of possession, taking the puck out of the offensive zone when you might've had it in there that, you know, we kind of see in three on three overtime in the NHL, but other than that, you really don't see much of that at all. So there's mm-hmm. that to account for. And I think, all along with Casper, since he's been drafted, he's he's been touted as this two-way player. Um, that 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 his greatest impact might be his defensive work rather than being that you know 90, 100 point guy. But again, we are still talking about a top 10 pick. So, like you're saying, you would hope that there's at least some measure of offense that you're gonna be able to get from him at an NHL level. And I think there there are some questions. So, you know, I, I thought Casper had a, a fairly disappointing training camp when he was with the Red Wings. I thought it was that kind of the comfort on the puck that just didn't seem there at all, really. Um, and and 
maybe a big part of that is that's, you know, even earlier in that process of getting acclimated to the North American sheet. Mm -hmm. So by no means is that, you know, disqualifying to me as far as me being like, oh, Casper's a bust. He's not going to be amount yeah. to anything. But I think there are legitimate questions around is this guy a center at the NHL level or at some point does he end up playing on the wing? And just how much can you count on him for offensively? With that mm -hmm. said, I think there are things that I love about his game. I think they're stylistically, and I think there's elements of this with Mazer as well. He feels like exactly what the Red Wing, he plays the way that the Red Wings want to play. There's a little bit of a kind of nasty streak there, and he's very direct, very simple. A kind of four check heavy game that I think applies to both he and Mazer that even if he's not, you know, the highest scoring player in the world, I think when you look at what that is, even if it ends up being like, I don't know, a Travis Konechny, who's obviously a really good player in Philadelphia. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he plays mostly on the wing and has that kind of nasty streak with a little bit of offense. Like that's a great piece to have in your lineup. If, if that's what you end up developing Casper into so definitely not panicking over 11 games of not scoring a ton but would like to see that start to pick up a little bit yeah and it's not that he has to score 90 you know in in the NHL when when he gets there eventually because I feel like they'll by nature of being such a, a high pick he'll eventually get his shot but mm -hmm. um just in terms of you know getting getting that opportunity I feel like the defense matters just just looking at this lineup there's a lot of scores who are going to be there to bring it's going to be there larkin's going to be there um the guys who play more of a defensive game and i think if a guy like michael rasmussen can make a difference and i know he got panned on for for not being a scorer um and he probably got called up a little too soon mm -hmm. when he played his, his 18 year old season or whatever that was um and then got sent down to the ahl the next season um and it was just a little weird like I feel like it's a, a comparable situation where you can't write off someone immediately. And Rasmussen, you, you can argue whether he's lived up to being the ninth overall pick, but, um, and especially who came after him. But at the same time, like there are different archetypes of players that can still be worthwhile to chase in the top 10. Um, and, and so we'll see if Casper can, can live up to that. So I, I think you're, you can feel better about the kind of organizational stability that will go into bringing up Casper mm -hmm. and, and ushering him through the system. But I think also with Casper and Edvinson, there's a reminder that at a certain point, your ability to kind of cater specifically to the needs of these prospects, it realistically is going to happen in a suboptimal way in at certain stages of that process especially because now, as we said in the first half of the show, the Red Wings are pushing to try to make themselves at least a playoff team this year. And so that means that you aren't going to feel comfortable kind of trotting a guy out there at the NHL level just to get him reps, to get him exposure, because you, you do have greater ambitions than that this year. And I think we see some teams kind of fall into that trap a little too early like when you look at a Columbus that you mentioned earlier in the show sending a guy like Kent Johnson down right now to me does not make a lot of sense when you're a team that has no realistic playoff ambitions for the coming season but it, I think that can be a little bit more of a justifiable position when you are trying to make that playoff push um I was fortunate to get invited to the Coaches Sites Conference in Ann Arbor um, over the summer, and I thought one of the coolest people who spoke there was a guy whose name was Carl Schwarzenbrunner. You'll never guess what country he was from. He was the um, director of coach education for the German uh, Ice Hockey Federation, and he 
one of the things he talked about that I thought was super interesting was a kind of 20-60-20 rule with prospect development. His point was that you want for, I guess it was more youth development than like NHL prospects specifically. But his point was that for a young hockey player, and I don't think this was hockey specific, but obviously he was talking about hockey. You want 20% of their time to be against kind of inferior competition where they're playing against kids who are fundamentally, they're just better than. And so they're getting to experience what it's like to sort of dominate games and be the best player out there and get a feel for, for what that's like. Then 60% of the time you want them against players who are about at their level, right? So it's, you know, there's some good, there's some bad, they're figuring some things out. Some stuff doesn't go that well. They're figuring it out along that road. And then 20% of the time at the other end of that spectrum, you want them in an environment that's sort of too advanced for them, right? Where Mm -hmm. uh, they're struggling and they see what it's like to be like, oh man, this is not going well. I have to figure something else out. What are the players who are doing well in this environment doing? What do I have to add to my game to get to that point? Um, and there was all sorts of like research and data behind this that I, you know, podcast host here, I'm not necessarily equipped to cite, but this was something that they put a ton of kind of time and thought in. And I think even just mm-hmm. at like an intuitive level, right. That makes sense. As I'm saying it of like, give them some chance to dominate, yeah. give them some chances to struggle and then give them a lot of, size of it, yeah. right. Like at a roughly age appropriate level. Well, obviously in the context of, of NHL prospect pool, that's not going to happen. Like you're not going to send a guy Casper for 20% of his time to go play in the ECHL and then spend 60% of his season at the, in the A and then maybe 20% of it in the NHL. Like that sort of yo-yoing is just not going to happen at an NHL level. And there are sort of certain demands placed on the organization to put a player in a given position um, based on, you know, the, like we were talking about the ambitions of the NHL team relative to prospect development, that there are trade-offs there. And so you aren't going to get to put your prospects in that hundred percent optimal environment all of the time. And at that point, it does start to kind of become incumbent on them to, to take matters into their own hands and to, you know, assert themselves through that development process. And obviously you do have all of this other infrastructures, you know, individualized development plans. And you, you you heard a ton of talk at development camp over the summer about like uh, kind of off ice habits that are essential to becoming a professional hockey player as far as, as far as, you know, diet and nutrition and sleep and all that stuff. Um, But these players are forced to, to, you know, figure some stuff out or be kind of thrown in the deep end or have to deal maybe in Edvinson's case with an environment that's not quite challenging enough for them and mm-hmm. still find a way out of that, um, which I just think is kind of important context to some extent in, in parsing the the progress of all of these guys. Yeah, I'd agree. And, and I feel like too, when you say 2060-20 with the ECHL, AHL, I mean, why not, you know? If Casper is kind of struggling, send him down to um, Toledo and see what he can do. Granted, it's a bit of a risk. Um, obviously, there's it's a little bit more physical of a league, a little more violent. Um, things can can tend to go awry in in the ECHL. Um, but at the same time, like if the Red Wings think that he's going to be able to, uh, you know, maybe get a little confidence, get a little swagger. Like I feel like that twenty percent against an inferior opponent is is like. You know that that game against a weak opponent gets someone's confidence back up and 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 gets them ready to roll. Like I feel like it's just a different way of of presenting that and putting putting a number behind it to to make it sound a little more official. Yeah, you know? it is at least interesting that that so much of the 
like you wouldn't even think of an NHL team doing that in part because it would seem mm-hmm. like you would get that kind of media pushback of like, oh man, clearly things are going poorly for Marco Casper if he were yeah. sent back down to that level. And that some of that just like, well, this is the way that we always do it as far as prospect development goes, mm-hmm. gets in the way of, of the decisions that you end up making on some of these guys. And and that like, yeah, this is the way it's done. Thinking is not something that, you know, in general, you'd be too excited about supporting. But yeah, it it's at least, I don't know, something to think about um, as far as Casper goes. Cool. Um, do you have a quick thought before we move on to some NCAA stuff on Carter Mazer? I think he's a guy who both of us are, are quite excited about um, and yeah, clearly I, off to a hot start here with with GR. I mean, I've loved him with with the World Junior teams and, and when he was at Denver. I thought he was a, a very underrated player at Denver. Big reason why they won that 2022 national championship um, outside of the the Bobby Brinks and the Carter Savoy's and um who's at Cole Gutman, that top line, mm-hmm. he was providing a lot of, um, I don't want to say like high-powered offense, but heavy offense, like hitting, kind of limiting where the defense was going to go because they knew they were going to get lit up. Um, and, and that's just a, a sort of feature of him being a, a larger-framed guy, I feel like. Um, and I, I forget what his height is exactly, but he's when you look at him and when you shake his hand and interview him, very wide gentleman, um, and and that tends to you know do well in, in an NHL level NHL ice just because he's not going to get kind of pushed around and so to see him also scoring because um, I feel like it's easy to take a heavy player <clears throat> and sort of like put them in that like classic John Tortorella like we're gonna hit everyone that moves and you're gonna be the one doing it forecheck defensive kind of role kind of pigeonhole them but like with that scoring that can be so dangerous if he can kind of build that power forward mindset and and really carry that to a higher level because um, it is easier to score in, in the NCAA than, than AHL. It's going to be easier in the AHL than the NHL. That's just the nature of, of how those mm-hmm. tiers work. Um, and so if he's scoring at this level, um, it's very encouraging for him to to join the lineup and, and also play a role in it and kind of tying it back to when we talk about a guy like Robbie Fabry, like it's the Carter Mazers that he's got to worry about that, that are going to come steal his job, so to speak. Um, I, I feel like that's the way to, to kind of kind of look at him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, take a job point is, is an important one as far as what for any of these prospects that we've talked about, that step has to be. Um, at the beginning of the season, I interviewed a number of different players on that topic of like, what was the hardest thing for you about kind of making that last step from really close to NHL ready to being a consistent NHL player? And I thought the most interesting answer I got was from Andrew Kopp, who talked about like, well, if you want to be a skilled, you know, offensive type player in the NHL, it's really hard to crack in to the lineup because you have to, in the case of the Red Wings, like it's hard to do that if you're not going to play on special teams. And so what are you going to take Dylan Larkin's spot on the power play? Are you going to take Alex Dabrinkit's spot on the power play? David yeah. Perron's spot on the power play? That's really hard to do with these guys who are well-established pros. And so mm-hmm. at a certain point, it does have to come back to that. But yeah, I, I totally with you on on everything that you said about Mazer as far as the way that like you get the kind of physicality and the grittiness. And he is also absolutely an agitator who, who oh, yeah. you know, self-described likes that... to piss people off. Yeah, that's that college hockey in him. Like mm-hmm. that's that's what the NCAA is really good at. And as a, you know, people can pan on it as a, a development league. I feel like we're getting away from that now, which is good. The NCAA is getting the respect it deserves. Um, but in terms of just teaching players to 
maybe play a little bit better defensively and play a little more physical. Um, I feel like it's a lot better than throwing a bunch of 16 and 17 year olds against each other in, in the major juniors, but not mm-hmm. to knock on, on major juniors. They're there for a reason. And they're a good option for a lot of players. I think we could knock on major junior a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. They don't well, pay players at all. Right. Neither well, does the NCAA, but at least they get an education. Sure. So now I sound like an NCAA. Yeah, that I, I don't know that I want to co-sign that line. We should far, we but... should pay players. That's I am very pro paying players. Right. But... Among them, Carter Maser, who should have been paid Mazer at Denver, because as you said, essential to a national championship team. Um, I thought just as you were talking about his kind of being a, a stout, not a stout physical stature, I guess uh, he talked about at development camp that his first job is hockey but his second job was eating because he was trying to like bulk up a little more and and tack on a bit more mass to to be ready for that you know the physicality and uh, of playing in a men's professional hockey league for the first time for a full season um and so you know kind of funny to to think about that in reference to to what you were saying but yeah uh i to me he's a, a really exciting prospect. I think a, a guy who you can really see making an impact. Um, I, th- I think there's a kind of maturity about him when you talk to him that that is impressive for where he is in in his development arc. And I think he's a guy who is absolutely gonna gonna pay div- dividends for this Red Wings team at yeah. some point in the not too distant future. And he's local, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, grew up a Red Wings fan. The like yep. everybody talks about, like, oh, this is the team. This is what I always wanted to do once they get that job. But like, I think it's a, it is. a little piece <laughs> of like a class project that he did in third grade or something about like I'm gonna yeah. play for the Red Wings one day. And of course, there's a million yeah. kids in Michigan saying that, but he's the yeah. one who lived it out. So hey, credit to him. He, he called his shot. Did everyone else also call their shot and strike out? Yes. Right, but it doesn't matter because he called he, his shot. Carter Mazur's doing cool. it for the, for all those Michiganders out there who thought that they yeah. might. All let's right, give him a chance. No. To wrap up today, let's do a quick roundup of some NCAA hockey news in Michigan. Um, first, uh, you had Michigan State last weekend with a tie, which was in the Big Ten standings a shootout loss on Friday to Penn State, but then bouncing back with a win. Uh, you had Michigan with a loss and regulation to Minnesota in a game that it probably should have won and blew a third period lead, kind of a familiar story with this year's Michigan team so far, and then a shootout win over the Gophers on Saturday. Um, Western Michigan with a little bit of a surprising result, getting swept at home by St. Cloud. Obviously, that's you know a formidable program, but I think uh, a little bit of a surprise to see, see Western not get any points out of that weekend. As far as those three series go, Connor, any, I don't know, major takeaways there? Anything that, that caught your interest? Um, I feel like Western against St. Cloud is, it, it might seem a little odd now just because St. Cloud State hasn't been dominant this year, but they do have a lot of talent. Um, Dominic sure. Bass, I want to say, I think that's how mm-hmm. you pronounce it, um, is it consistently been a pretty decent goaltender. Maybe not, you know, going to go out for the Richter or anything, but, but he's serviceable. Um, they still have some, some of the talent that helped them last season be one of the two seeds. Um, and, and maybe make some noise toward potentially making the Frozen Four. And I, I forget what round they got knocked out in. Um, but it is the NCHC. The teams are good. It's just like the Big Ten. Um, so seeing a, a sweep, while it is a little bit, um, makes you wonder how, how good Western might be, especially when they were successful before and they kind of fell apart in that series. Um, at the same time, like it's not like they're playing Holy Cross. You know, It's yeah. not like they're playing can't even say Arizona state anymore, but like Stonehill, you sure. know, like they're not playing scrubs. They're playing a decent team. So sometimes you're going to get a result like that. And I feel like 
Michigan's run into that too. Like um, maybe hasn't gotten, or they got swept by Wisconsin, but Wisconsin's good this year. But in, you know, in the past dropping games to teams that they maybe have a chance to win, um, you know, doesn't always, the opponents are good enough that it doesn't always reflect how good the other team is if a team loses. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely fair and, and far from, you know, causing panic or anything like that with, with yeah. the Broncos, who, as we discussed last week, that's a, a team that knows exactly who they are um, mm-hmm. and, and has shown that they're able to kind of turn over that roster and and keep playing to that identity. So mm-hmm. not too big of a concern. But on on the flip side there with what was probably the most serious topic to come up this week um, within the world of college hockey in Michigan was a story out of Michigan Tech with, and I'm going to apologize in advance for not good pronunciation on some of these names here, but Patrick Marson Kivics, um, a high scoring transfer forward. I believe he transferred in from Long Island University, um, if I'm not mistaken. He has... Uh, is no longer with the Huskies after alleging misconduct against their coach, Joe Shawhan. Um, There was a recording, I think, that was particular disturbing that came out of a conversation where Sean says, do you want an effing answer or do you want me to knock your teeth out? Um, I think we've, obviously, Connor and I have both covered Michigan, which has had, you know, Mm -hmm. coaching misconduct scandal in in a very recent history and and like cultural issues with under the mel pearson regime with like feelings of of safety and environment um and i think often my initial reaction to any story like this about like environment and and hazing which is not exactly what this is is that these stories are more common than we hear about right that this happens a lot more often than we do hear about and i think there's some legitimate conversation to be had about like the way that some of these, you know, quote unquote, old school coaches are have been kind of taught and trained to deal with players in a way that is fundamentally incompatible with with what mm-hmm. good coaching looks like today. But I think the moment that you hear a sort of threat of physical violence yeah. against a player, that's a totally different conversation to me as far as where if maybe you're saying like, oh, he's an old school coach and like he yells at players, but they love him for that. And like, that's the their version of building relationships. Like, I don't know. I, I'm still skeptical of that in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that is an outdated approach, but I'd, I'm at least more sympathetic to that than the minute you're hearing a comment like that where where it's a physical threat against a student athlete like that is to me instantly disqualifying yeah and and like threaten to hang him too like that's also um yeah. or, or hang him up is is was the quote that he corrected it's like no 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 i didn't say i would hang you i said i would hang you up which yeah. is even worse um but he like doubled down essentially um no after covering the the mel pearson scandal um and, and misconduct it's just it's like college hockey and, and just as, as as hockey is a community we kind of beat our heads against the wall just doing the same thing over and over again and putting unqualified leaders in in these positions um and it, it really is like being a decent human being is the bare minimum to, to being a, a, a yeah. good coach and, and a good person like so seeing that is just it's a little disheartening because especially too because Michigan Tech was a team that has a lot of talent, a lot of good players um, that are, are going to make pushes to get into the NHL. I feel like there's a few mm-hmm. players on that roster that have a chance. Blake Patila, um, Michigan product, one of them. And like to see that sort of get derailed by this, um, 
and not to mention the safety of those players. I, if they were able to play under this environment, how much more could they thrive under a positive environment where they're not worried about this? Um, so it's 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 really disheartening to see. Um, and we'll we'll see when Michigan Tech, if Michigan Tech launches an investigation. I'm not totally sure if they have yet, mm-hmm. um, but we'll see how this sort of gets resolved and 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 the the fact finding that goes on around it. If this is recorded, I can't imagine what he says when he thinks he's not being recorded. I mean, Absolutely. I don't think he thought he was being recorded now. Um, but if someone is secretly recording, they've heard something worse or or something on par that makes them want to secretly record. Um, so I'd be curious to hear what the other reports are. Um, and there's also the aspect of hockey culture, too, where maybe players don't want to talk and speak out against him um, that, that might play into this, too. So um, it, it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to as you said, like very much a, an ongoing story here, a story that's continuing to develop. So we're not going to necessarily reach any kind of clear conclusion right mm-hmm. now. Um, I think your point also about like the impact that this has to have on performance for for mm-hmm. that whole team. We talked last week about how um, they kind of gotten off to a little bit of a rocky start relative to being a tournament team last year and and the talent that they brought back. So it with this story coming out, it, it feels very hard to to separate those two things from one another as far as clear dis-ease within the locker room, clear cultural issues and and discomfort with like maybe as we said, hard coaching and, and like being that kind mm. of intense figure has a some amount of place, but clearly this has crossed a line where that is not appropriate. And that's not about like throwing stones or tearing down what's going on at Michigan Tech. It, it, Like you said, this is clearly a much broader issue within the culture of hockey, within the culture of coaching, um, that, that certain individuals are empowered and, you know, in some ways trained by their own experience to behave in these ways. But as much as this might be the product of like cycles and, and the way a coach may have been coached themselves when, when they were a young player back in the day, it you it's still up to you you're you're responsible for your own conduct right and and so it 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 has to come back to Sean himself as far as as the the ramifications of this and and it, it feels very hard to it given that there we're already hearing these you know recordings it's not as though these are you know straight allegations and like a he said she said way where we have very direct evidence in some of these cases that feels to me like we we should be on the road to him no longer being a coach there. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. Um, sort of a somber note uh, on which to to wrap up the pod <laughs> for this up. week. Apologies for for maybe bringing you down a little bit on, on your Friday. Um, in brighter news, I mean, Connor with another big touch football victory yesterday, as he alluded to, and, and a big trip to, to College Park coming up. For him, I'm a little yeah. surprised you made it back from State College. You, your your I prediction didn't come I, true. Of, I thought of about a Penn State Stan victory. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Are you looking we forward are. to College Park? Uh not so much. I've been there before. Oh, it's got it. Cool, what, it's, what, it's, it's what just, were you it's in College cool. Park for? Uh I had so when I was a junior going into senior year of high school, there was this like leadership conference, and so at my high school, like I got a little scholarship to go to it and and went and then it turned out to be this like so it was about national security and defense and it turned out to be a lot of future republicans yeah Um, i I can see where this is going nothing against people who have those political beliefs um however i am not one of them 
And so it was very um, enlightening to, 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 to who's going into defense and national security um, and, the, and the types of mindsets. Um, God bless them. <laughs> yeah. God bless them. And God bless us when, when our defense is in their hands um, and diplomacy. So. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we'll we'll wrap it up for today. Connor, yeah. safe travels this afternoon when you head down that way. Um, you can check out Connor's work covering University of Michigan football with the Michigan Daily. Um, I don't think there's been anything super new with college hockey news, right? At least for the time being. Uh, working on working on a feature about Wisconsin. Outstanding. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, on my end, be sure to check out THN.com slash Detroit. Uh, for daily Red Wings coverage um, and also had a feature drop this morning on gulagulohockey.substack.com talking a little bit about uh, Matt Deschamps uh, and the impact that he's had, his sort of background and philosophy when it comes to coaching, a definitely much different picture as far as what, you know, the relationship building of coaching can look like and, you know, a much more positive one as well. So maybe that can be a salve <laughs> for our our slightly uh, less fun end of the show here, but thank you very much for listening. um, And we'll be back next week. 